Well, this morning, friends, we're going to be arriving in Acts chapter 11, uh, verses 19 through 30. So I invite you to go ahead and turn with me in your copy of God's Word to that passage. Uh, as way of an introduction, uh, the other day, uh, I ended up creating some new signs for our church. And you might have seen uh, one of them over at the Walmart here in town. Uh, it happened to be toppled over. Uh, it kept on happening over and over and over again. I couldn't tell if it was just the wind or if it was some prankster. Um, and if it was a prankster, guten prank to you too. Um, but whatever the case was, I'm just thankful that we have this opportunity to be able to let people know here in town that, that we are here and that we want them to come join us for worship. But as I was putting these signs up and even designing the signs and putting things together and thinking through all the logistics, I couldn't help but think of this question. You know, what is the reputation of our church here in our own town? Are we at Christ's covenant known as a people who is marked by peace and purity even here within the body of Christ locally? Are we known for our love as a church? Are we known for our generosity? Or with all the new hundreds of folks, quite literally, who've been moving to Culpeper recently, including my own self, a few months ago, do people even know about our church? Well, whatever the case, I believe that we are in a position here at Christ's Covenant to be about the advancement of God's kingdom of grace by his own grace and nothing less. It must be his work from beginning to end. And the beauty of this mission that we are all a part of as a church family is that we are not venturing onto new territory. The church has always been a part of this same project, if you will, of advancing the kingdom of grace. And we see that here in Acts 11, verses 19 through 30. The church of Antioch itself. They were in a similar position. Here they were seen as those, this new church even, that had a new reputation that was being built up upon nothing short of the transformative power of the gospel of grace. They were a church that was also planted in a large city, a large city that was exponentially growing. They were a church that became zealous for evangelism, sharing the gospel with their neighbors and friends alike. But beyond all these wonderful attributes, they were a church <clears throat> that knew themselves to be edified and built up by the Lord's faithfulness to them and his purpose for them. So how did they get there? Well, I'm convinced that they only became a somewhat healthy church, as we're about to read of, by three ways that the gospel impacted them. Three ways. The internal, the fraternal, and the external. Three areas of our own lives where the gospel affects us. So let's go ahead and read from God's word as we see and hear uh, of how this church was brought to a place of healthfulness as a new church plant, if you will. So let's go ahead and read from God's word. Acts 11, verses 19 through 30. It's the word of God given to us in love. The word of God says this. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was on them and with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. 
The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord and steadfast in their purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, every one according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Again, this is God's word, given to us in love, forever faithful and true. Let's go ahead and come before our God in prayer. Lord Jesus, as we have read your word, we ask that you would make clear to us exactly what it is that you want us to learn this morning. We ask, oh God, that we would take in the gospel message first and foremost, and that we would also be men and women who um, just let this message marinate within our souls during this time. We ask that the Spirit would be at work transforming our hearts and our minds to think your thoughts after you, O oh God. And we ask in this time that um, as a mere mouthpiece, I would simply get out of the way and that your word would be front and centered here as we hear from your word. So we pray all this in your holy name. Amen. Well, this morning, again, I want to draw our attention to essentially three marks of a healthy church that we see here in Acts 11. Um, three things that are also in your bulletins. These three things are uh, internal peace and purity, fraternal or brotherly love, and external generosity toward others. So again, the internal, the fraternal or brotherly, and the external. And we'll see the first of these marks in verses 19 through 21. If you will look again with me at verse 19, we see here how Luke reminds us immediately, right off the bat, of the persecution that happened shortly after the time of Stephen and his martyrdom. The persecution that was happening there in Jerusalem. According to historical records, nearly 10 years had now passed since that time. Uh, all those events that happened in Acts 7 that we saw a few weeks ago. So by now, the church had been scattered, not only throughout Judea and Samaria, but now much further away. And Luke gives us some examples of these places where the Jews were settling into and the early believers were settling into. Three places in particular. Uh, Phoenicia, which was a region to the north of Israel, modern-day Lebanon, if you will. Uh, Cyprus, which was a major commercial island right off the coast of Antioch in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, as if you're going toward Italy on vacation out there. And lastly was Antioch. Antioch within Syria in particular. This city called Antioch was about 300 miles north of Jerusalem, kind of like the distance between New York City is to hear uh, us here in Culpeper. And so Luke does something interesting. He notices that there is something peculiar going on in Antioch, and he essentially zooms into the story here and draws our attention to this particular event. 
See, here in Antioch, the hand of God was apparently moving amongst, of all people, the most pagan of the Gentiles, the most godless of all the people. God was apparently summoning the most unlikely disciples to himself. Verse 21 says it so well. As a result, a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Essentially, they repented of all of their ways and turned to God in Christ. Now, this statement, believe it or not, is one of the most remarkable things that we've read so far in Acts. But unless you're a history nerd like me or just someone who happens to know all about Antioch, uh, for whatever reason, I'm sure most of us didn't catch just how potent that statement is, that a great number of the people from Antioch turned to the Lord. See, at this time, Antioch itself was a place that was just filled with godlessness. It was so godless. I want to get into that in a moment, but just to kind of paint the picture of Antioch, this place, again, was about 300 miles north of Jerusalem, so not too far from hearing the gospel, and yet for so long they had not heard the gospel. They had been opposed to it. But Antioch itself was the city that stretched back hundreds of years. It had been established around 300 BC and then even reorganized under uh, the military commander Pompey in 64 BC. And so they'd been through a lot of changes. But because of the Roman rule, thankfully, uh, there was actually religious liberty that was allowed in Antioch. And the folks enjoyed the religious liberty so much that even... Uh, one-seventh of the population there in Antioch were actually Jews, practicing Jews. But amongst the other thousands of among, uh, upon thousands of other people were folks like the Romans and the Greeks, the Arabs and other Semitics and even Persians. People from all different kinds of cultures and they just filled this city and they all kind of got along somehow. Again, much like a New York City would be, if you will. And so the town, the city, really, became a melting pot of all different kinds of cultures. As such, the city was filled with wealth and prosperity, but also wickedness and paganism. For instance, the cult of Artemis and Apollo found its way here to the city. They had a whole temple just dedicated to Daphne alone. And so they ended up worshiping there. It was the main religion of the day. And every single night, the men of the city would sneak away with the temple priestesses and do, we'll just say, non-PG rated kinds of things. And this was known throughout the entire world that these kind of people were allowed to do whatever they wanted in Antioch. They could get away with it, whatever, perverted, whatever perversion their hearts desired. And so their religion essentially was built upon prostitution and feelings of euphoria. Again, a godless place. In fact, their perversion was even so disgusting that even the most colorful of all the Roman poets, such as Juvenal, who wrote this book or poem called Satire, or Satire, if you will, even described the events that were taking place and deplored the depravity of these people. He was just so disgusted by it. 
but something happened by God's sheer kindness and mercy. See, his mercy was given to the most undeserving. A great number of these people from Antioch became convicted over their wickedness as the gospel was preached to them, and they ended up calling out to the Lord for forgiveness. And so by faith in the Savior of sinners, they received a right standing before God. And in time, the gospel not only evidently so brought peace and purity internally to that city amongst the believers, but even in their relationships with others. The gospel and the gospel alone not only purified them from their sin-stained bodies and minds, but it also safeguarded this new church as the family of God. They were called to be holy as God was holy. And they only knew that by the righteousness of Christ. And so as such, their identity was no longer in all this untold wealth, power, positions of influence, or popularity, or covetous fleshly desires. Rather, their position and their identity became rooted in Christ. And so by faith in his name, they knew him as their prophet, priest, and their king. The same things that we have been quoting the last few weeks from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. They knew Christ to be the one who revealed the will of God by his word and by his spirit for them. They knew Christ to be the priest who offered himself as a sacrifice for sin, to satisfy divine justice, and to reconcile us to God, always interceding for us. And they knew Christ to be the true king higher than Caesar, higher than any other authority, the one who subdues us to himself, ruling and defending us. So the believers in Antioch experienced essentially the liberating power of the gospel over the power of reigning sin. And friends, so can we. Here in our church, even for those of us who are believers, we recognize the power of sin and that we have indeed, yes, been saved from it. We are no longer under its grip, but we wrestle with the presence of sin and all of the wickedness that it brings. And so we often, as believers, wrestle with a sense of, man, do we really feel peace and purity? Or in place of that, do we feel guilt and shame? Maybe even this morning, you yourself are feeling guilt and shame over sin. Guilt over sin that has been done, or that you have done, rather, or even shame because of your sin, even sins that have been done against you. Whatever the case, I want to pose a personal question before us. If we are feeling these things in regard to our sin, what is it about the gospel of grace that we are not owning and taking to heart for ourselves? Why do we feel the guilt or the shame? And what will we do about that? Do we feel in the moments of guilt that God is angry at us? Or perhaps, maybe on the flip side, you haven't felt guilt in a while over your sin. And you've been wrestling instead with a sense of pride or some matter of your own ego instead. Do you recognize that for what it is? The sin of pride swelling up within your heart and making you to become blinded to the things of God. How about shame? Have you been 
maybe personally wrestling with a sense of shame. Again, sin that has been done to you or that you yourself have done. Stuff that makes you just want to hide your face from the living God who is good. If so, have you confessed these things before God and brought your fears and your concerns before him and leaned upon his gospel? Have you even reached out to others in our own community, your brothers and sisters, and asked them to come alongside you as well, those whom you trust? I say all this because if we desire to be a church, much like the church of Antioch, that was marked by peace and purity in time as the gospel made inroads, we ourselves must also be mindful of the internal feelings, as it were, of peace and purity that the gospel brings us. For if any one of us is suffering from the weight of sin, we all indeed suffer. And if we allow either guilt or shame to fester in our own souls, we will feel a sense of disparity with God and a sense of disjointedness with other people. I love how the Lutheran pastor Harold Sinkbeel says it in his book called The Care of Souls, how he describes these feelings, these emotions that we tend to bottle up. He says this about guilt and shame in particular. Guilt has to do with behavior, with, again, that sense of what we do, while shame itself is a matter of identity, who we are. Guilt is tied to the things that I've done. Shame is the continuous experience of utter remorse over who I am. But who are you before the living God? If you are not yet a believer, do you realize that God himself wants to deliver you from this guilt and shame, the results of your sin, and all of the power of sin around it? And if you are a believer, are you resting in the promises of Christ that he himself is the only way out of those feelings of guilt and shame into a life filled with his peace and purity that he brings to us in the gospel? See, if your faith is in Jesus, I'd encourage you to cling to the promises in the gospel. That he is the one who cleanses us. That he is the one who purifies us. And as I was reminded even this past week from the text of Hebrews 10, 19 through 23, this beautiful gospel truth that we can cling to in spite of these things. The gospel that tells us, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast this confession of our hope, hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Well, friends, this brings us to the second point this morning that we find here in verses 22 through 26, this idea of fraternal reciprocity or brotherly love, if you will. See, we as individuals not only experience peace and purity when we wrestle with and confess our sin before God and lean upon others, doing life with them, so to speak, the church also experiences that same peace and purity by and large when as a community we do that together. When the church is marked by internal peace and purity, we will indeed become known by our love for one another. 
And this kind of spirit-led, spirit-induced love is contagious. Dare I say even more contagious than COVID-19 ever was. People can't help, though, when this kind of Christ-honoring love spreads like a wildfire in our midst. They can't help but notice that this kind of love is characterized by selfless, Christ-honoring humility before one another. And again, we see this portrayed in verses 22 through 26. So let's turn back again there, if you will. Verse 22, a report of the Lord's work was brought to the church in Jerusalem. And it wasn't the bad kind of report. (laughs) Maybe a credit kind of report or (laughs) kind of report that you might come home to your parents with at the end of the school year. Rather, the folks were actually bragging on these people in Antioch. And not just the people, really, but what God was doing through the people. And I love seeing the church at Jerusalem, just their response to this news. See, they had been taking this truth to heart for a good while now that even the Gentiles were being brought into the covenant people of God. These men and women in Antioch, former pagan and idolater worshipers, were being brought into Christ to the Lord, as the text says. And now the church in Jerusalem had the chance to respond. So what did they do? Well, they ended up sending Barnabas, uh, who's called the son of encouragement, literally what the word Barnabas means, to Antioch. Of course, time would fail us to go into all the different 30-some ways in which Barnabas' name is referenced in Scripture. I don't want to bore us with all of those different references right now, but... Um, for the sake of brevity, I think it's important to understand why Barnabas was chosen. So why Barnabas? Well, Barnabas himself was from Cyprus, as we know from the scripture, which again was that island off the coast of Antioch. He would have been probably the most relatable person to send to the people of Antioch. He would would have been familiar with their customs, their ways of life, all kinds of things regarding that. But beyond that, he was a man of character, a man of faith. He apparently had this huge heart for evangelism and also for discipling or building up the church. And he was driven to grow the church through mentoring and training young men like Saul and others that we'll see later on, like John Mark. And so by every account, Barnabas was this beloved pastor, but he was also a humble missionary. And the church in Jerusalem thought, wow, this would be the perfect guy to send out. He's even described in verse 26 as being a good man in their own words. A good man who is full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. So when this man arrived in Antioch, what did he do? Well, the scripture goes on to tell us that he ended up encouraging, warmly encouraging them at that, these new believers. And he told them to do something to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. In other words, the Lord has been faithful to you. He's shown you his gospel. Now abide with him. He's given you purpose. Now abide in that purpose that he's given to you. In other words, simplify. Be always faithful. But he didn't just commend them and then move on to the next church. What did he end up doing? He went over to grab Saul, wherever he was serving at the time, and he pulled him into the mix. 
And the two of them, Saul and Barnabas alike, ended up staying with them for a whole year. Verse 26 goes on to say that for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Wow. Talk about a transformation. That they were no longer pagans, but now those who were in Christ, identified with Christ. Here these citizens of Syrian Antioch had become so enamored with Christ and his gospel that the untold thousands of people all around them just couldn't look away. It was this magnificent work of God happening in their midst. And even the non-believers couldn't help but notice. But what's interesting is that these new believers didn't classify themselves any longer as Jews or Romans or Greeks or Persians. Rather, they were committed mind body, and soul to their faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, they identified with him. So much so that they were labeled. They were labeled Christian. A word that comes from both the Greek and the Latin. A word that refers to somebody being in Christ. And this was telling because, again, the culture all around them knew that they identified with Christ. Not to this city, not to their culture, not to their professions or their hobbies or their interests. They belong to Christ. Friends, can you imagine if our own colleagues and our own neighbors saw us first as those who belonged to Christ? That when they thought of us here gathered at Christ's covenant, they didn't think of us as, oh, that's the church called Christ's covenant, but that they would think of us as being in covenant with Christ. And that we would then have the opportunity to explain what that means to them. Can you imagine how Jesus' name would be exalted in our own town of Culpeper and beyond if folks thought of us as those in Christ? Well, I believe we would become so enamored with the love of God if we continue to put that at the forefront of our minds and that our identity as Christ's people would then be so unavoidably made clear to those in our own town, if that was true. I pray that we would take that on all the more. See, if we become so enamored with the love of God, our full-time job would be to bless those in our community, to love as the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. Our church would be concerned about the glory of God and the good of our own neighbors around us, bringing him the glory in all things. Our church would become, again, a, a sending church, if you will, sending out people to advance the gospel of grace wherever the Lord would uh, make known to us to go. We would send out missionaries. We would send out people. And we would be ourselves on mission here in our town. At the heart of it, our own souls would be watered continually by the refreshing gospel of grace, by scripture upon our souls. Our lives would be hidden with Christ and God. And Lord willing, <clears throat> in time, our, our names here at Christ's covenant would indeed be forgotten. But God's work here in this community would not. He would get all the glory. 
Well, this isn't just lofty dreaming. This isn't just idealism. This actually happened right here in Acts 11. See, for a whole year in Antioch, by the Spirit's guidance of them into the truth, this was exactly what happened. The church there in Antioch became known for their love and their external generosity, which is our third and our final point this morning. See, Acts 11, 27 through verse 30 describes the external focus of the church here. When the prophets came, like Agabus and others, came from Jerusalem and foretold the coming famine, who was the first to respond? The new believers there in Antioch. Where did their minds go? Did it go to the needs of their own city, their own church, their own livelihood? No. It went to the church by and large. God's work in the world. And specifically, the church in Jerusalem came to their minds. Each and every one of them contributed as much as they could to care for God's people. So why then Jerusalem? I believe verse 30 here holds the key for us. It says this, that they sent the contribution, the offering, if you will, to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. What's curious here is that in the Greek, literally, this phrase, to the elders, means to the presbytery, to the elders who were there in Jerusalem, the presbytery, if you will. And this is just pregnant with meaning. See, the church of Antioch recognized that they themselves were an extension of the church. They were not some separate church doing their own thing, but rather they were a part of God's work in the world. So the church of Antioch saw this. And they saw that they were not any less important than the church in Jerusalem, but rather they knew that God was the one who had handed them all things, and that when even another sister church was in need, they could step up and respond. Their money, after all, belonged to God. Their livelihoods belonged to Him. Their time, talent, and abilities all belonged to Him. And so when a famine was foretold, and in time it actually did come to be, uh, even non-Christian historians like Tacitus and uh, Josephus and Lucius Cassius Dio all uh, explain that this famine actually happened. This church was then eager to give out of charitable generosity. They knew that they were simply a part of a system of local churches, that they were part of this giant presbytery, if you will. And this is the beauty of Presbyterianism, as we might call it. This system of church government in which we are accountable to each other and that we are on mission with each other. See, we are not alone in doing this thing called the church, even here at Christ's covenant. We are part of a much grander work of God. This is why our church desires to be part of the PCA and not only desires it, but is part of it and wants to continue to support the mission and work of our denomination and our own presbytery. I'm so thankful that um, the PCA, by God's grace, is just continuing to prove faithful to the scriptures, even as hard challenges are brought up in time. A couple weeks ago, even at General Assembly, some heavy issues were brought up, and thankfully, the church responded with love and with grace from the scriptures to these things. And as times like these, General Assembly once a year and times that we're reminded of these things that I'm just so thankful to be a part of a much grander thing. That our church isn't
doing church in isolation, but rather that we are joined with, in our case, nearly 2,000 other churches in our own denomination. And I think that is all worth giving praise to God. So as we conclude, how will we continue to move forward as a mission church? A church that is essentially in a rebuilding mode in many ways. Well, First, I want to stress that we will not continue to grow without a sincere love and affection for Christ and also his people. And that we will lift them up in prayer. Second, we cannot expect to grow without seeing ourselves as one church among many. We are in that uh, fraternal relationship, if you will, with other churches in our own presbytery and beyond. But even here in town, we are hardly alone in explaining the beauties of the gospel to people in our own community. There are at least a dozen other churches that are Bible-believing and Christ-exalting. And though we differ in our theological distinctions, they are also preaching Christ. I'm so thankful for that. So would you also consider praying for our brothers and sisters throughout this town as well? Finally, and thirdly, I believe that we will begin to see real vibrant growth as we not only look internally and even fraternally, if you will, with other churches, but externally to people in our community. We must realize that growth happens in multidimensional ways, not only through lifting our prayers up to God, but through verbal encouragement to other people. Not only through our giving of our time, but through giving of our finances and time and talent and ability to others around us. Not only through living in light of the peace that God has secured for us through Christ, but through striving for peace in as much as it depends upon us and our community. May these things be true of us, friends. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you that you are the one who has brought us to this place of worship to come before you, to adore your name for who you are. And we thank you, O oh God, that you are the one who binds us up, who binds us together as the body of Christ, who brings to us peace and purity through our uh, relationship with him. And we're so thankful for this, Lord God. So we pray this all in your holy name. Amen.